0: Hello, I'm Evans Mirages, the Harry T. Wilkes Artistic Director for Cincinnati Opera. My guest is Morris Robinson, bass singer extraordinaire, longtime friend of Cincinnati Opera, and a man with a wonderful and unique story about how he came into the world of opera late, as a matter of fact, by most people's standards, and has made an incredible success in his career. He's my guest, and I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Morris, I think of all the unusual stories of people finding their way to opera, yours is my favorite, <laughs> and the most improbable one of all. How does someone who chooses the path of professional football wind up in opera?
1: <laughs> well, when one door closes, you the other one opens up, I guess. Fair enough. Um, you know, I, I talk about all the time. I mean, the similarities between athletics and being an opera singer are very, very prevalent. Um it takes physical preparation, it takes discipline, it takes coachability, it takes, one, being able to follow directions, it takes personal accountability, uh, discipline, all these things, you know, intestinal fortitude, being able to get knocked down and picked back up, you know, you know. Yeah, you learn metaphorically
0: out, <laughs> as opposed to physically. <laughs> well, yes, but
1: That's sometimes that. physically, too, depending on how mean the conductor is, but...
0: <laughs> <laughs> or how nasty the stage director <laughs> oh, is, Oh, that, right? too, I've done yeah. both, yeah. Exactly right. But,
1: uh, no, I think that, um, I mean, obviously you have to have the musical talent and the gift and, and the voice. And I was blessed with that. You know, I knew that early on that I sang differently than most kids in my school. I went to a high school performing arts and we sang the Mozart Requiem my junior year and I got all the bass solos for that. We did the Haydn's Creation my senior year. I got the bass solos for that. And then I decided I didn't want to go to school on a music scholarship. I wanted to go hit people. You know? I'm a boy from the South. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's not the honorable thing to do to be in a chorus. You want to go out and be a ball player, you know that was the cool thing to do, and I love football. It was a passion of mine, and you know, as I think back on it, you know, as in in my older years, and I think back, I think probably one of the reasons I love football so much is because it allowed me to be the musician. It lo- allowed me to be the kid that was good on drums. It allowed me to be the kid that was articulate and went to other schools, you know, because you know my church friends were from the other side of the track sometimes, and they were very rough, and I wasn't, I didn't fit that mold, and I didn't garner their respect until I was able to go out and prove myself. Huh. in that industry. So, you know, but the journey, um, there was no natural occurrence. It was, it was, I didn't do anything really to prepare myself for opera until I got, you know, the age of 30, I decided I wanted to give it a shot. That late? Yeah, I started at the age of 30. I, I went, well, at the age of 29, I auditioned for the weekend program at the New England Conservatory of Music. And that was, preempted by singing for Norman Scribner in Washington, D.C.
0: His wonderful chorus.
1: Wonderful chorus. He gave me a a slide in the Choral Arts Society, but he was so enamored with my abilities, he said, you should be singing out front. You should be in the chorus. So when you hear someone like that say something to you, you think, maybe there is something special going on here. I should probably pursue it. So when I got to New England, I took another job there. I auditioned for the New England Conservatory, which had a weekend program uh, called Continuing Education. Mm -hmm. And so I got into their opera studio after singing the national anthem for them. And uh, it just kind of snowballed from there. I got into a production in Salem, Massachusetts called Satanella by Michael Balfe. Sharon Daniels from Boston University was there. She had a, a student in in the production. And she walked up to me and says, with a voice like yours, you should be singing for a living. And you really need to consider doing this. So yeah, I had a job. So general.
0: all along, it's other people at first recognizing your talent you're not one of those kids who was born with if I don't sing on the stage of the Met I'll die at the age of 12 it almost was visited upon you by other people to say you should recognize what you
1: have exactly and I you know I came from the south and I came from a a very religious church-going family so everyone could sing Mm -hmm. you know I was just the one guy that didn't sing like James Cleveland or Walter Hawkins and those guys I was I had this weird voice and my sisters never wanted me to sing with them because I sounded weird um, but and probably <laughs> you could you could outsing them, too. No, the I, I would never say that. I can't <laughs> say that right now. As a matter of fact, they were louder and, and more riffy, and they could do all the stuff that I couldn't do. But mm-hmm. I could make these huge, sustainable sounds, and uh, other people appreciated it. So it was other people that always said to me, you know, this isn't for you, but you could definitely do this. And, yeah, finally, at the age of 30, I finally took up someone's, uh, I took the challenge and went for it.
0: So let's spin back the clock a little bit, because as you indicated, you music has been part of your life since you were a child. Mm-hmm. It started, like, with so many people who excel in the world of opera, uh, in church. Right. But you weren't just yeah. a singer in church. You were an instrumentalist in church.
1: I was a church drummer. And you still are a church drummer. I still play the drums at church when I'm home. Um, it's. Uh, I guess, again, it was just the cool thing, you know. My first church drummer, I was about seven or eight years old. I watched him, and then he ended up leaving the church, and I told my parents, I think I can do it. And so my dad bought me a drum set Christmas, and I sat around the house and played for... Two weeks straight, he couldn't believe what I was doing. I just picked oh, it up. Your
0: parents are saints. <laughs> they are. I mean, they dealt I with played. Cl- I was gonna say I played clarinet as a child, and my father made certain that my bedroom door was closed. But at least, you know, a clarinet you can't hear at the other end of the house. Yeah, the, the drums you can't escape. The whole neighborhood
1: knew I got drums. It was, <laughs> it was actually kind of cool because one of my sisters got a stereo at the same time, so they could sing and I could play the drums and. <laughs> My parents were like, "Yep, we got the Jackson Five happening, so we'll tell them do what they're doing." So Amazing. it worked out. But I became the church drummer about age nine, uh-huh. and uh, you know, and I played for not only my church, but my mother was like my booking agent. Other churches would hire me to play for the anniversaries. So I was playing for everyone in Atlanta. By the time I was twelve years old, I was known all over Atlanta as just like the guy that played played drums. You know, and
0: no one had discovered your singing voice at that.
1: Point. Well, I I sang with the Atlanta Boy Choir at the age of se- uh, second grade, third grade, fourth grade mm-hmm. in that time frame. But I hated it. I hated it. Too much discipline. No, too much coming home from Atlanta Boy Choir rehearsal practice and going to the game room at Greenbrier Mall. And the other kids were carrying their shoulder pads, and I got on like this vest that says Atlanta Boy Choir. Wasn't the look I wanted. So <laughs> I always fought against this thing. You know, <laughs> it's
0: amazing. So it took it took you until age 30 to, as it were, accept mm-hmm. the talent that was there all along. You just fought against it.
1: Pretty, well, I would not, you know, I guess I fought against That's
0: a... maybe too strong a word to right. say, but, but you resisted and you looked for other paths, you looked for other ways to validate yourself and your personality and your worth. And That's exactly right, yeah.
1: yeah. I mean, this is just a, something I always could do and, and no one, I never thought it, I never dreamt that it could take me anywhere.
0: So where does football start?
1: did it start? Yeah. That's interesting, too, because I wanted to play as a, as a young kid. I wanted to play. But back then, we had weight regulations. So at the age of 10, I weighed about 130 pounds. Mm-hmm. So I would have to play with the 13- and 14-year-olds, and I would have gotten killed. So I couldn't play until my first time playing was eighth grade, and I had no clue what I was doing. But I was six feet tall, 175 pounds, one of the biggest kids in school, and I didn't know what I was doing. I got my butt kicked. Mm-hmm. Played that year. We went undefeated. And then, now, that's
0: an interesting thing to think about in <laughs> terms of your musical life, because what you had, of course, was the—it's something that I find fascinating sometimes when you meet larger people with more slender voices, mm-hmm. and people think just because of the physicality they should be singing heavier repertoire, right. whereas the analogy for you as a young football player is you were a big guy, but you were too
1: young. At first, didn't have any But you had,
0: you had that mismatch yeah. that we sometimes encounter in singers, where they look like something but sound like something else.
1: Yeah, that is a real odd optic dynamic, isn't it? Yeah, it's, uh, yeah. it's fascinating.
0: So anyway, so but by the time you got to uh, eighth grade, your your physicality and your your skill were closer, more closely aligned. No, eventually?
1: eighth grade I didn't. I, I started, but I was you know, wasn't that good. My mm-hmm. ninth grade year. Because I went to a high school of performing arts, I ended up playing in the band, marching band, and being in the, in the chorus, which I hated that too. Because, so s- spring practice my freshman year, I quit the band Wow. and joined the chorus full time because they would let me play football. So I kind of joined the chorus and started singing in order to play football, to allow me to play football. That's
0: the that's that's first time <laughs> I'm hearing that one too. That's great. That's true.
1: <laughs> and uh, then I, you know, it's, I really, really wanted to be a ball player, and I wasn't that good at it, and I got my butt kicked every day. But I kept going back, kept going back, kept going back. Got the drive and determination. I was determined that those guys weren't going to be better than me. Mm. And I eventually became a starter. I eventually became All Conference, All County, and got recruited, played in college, and worked out. So yeah,
0: that's amazing. So, <clears throat> played college ball. Did yeah. you did you turn pro? Did you try to go pro?
1: Well, I I had to. You know, I wanted to go pro. I mean, mm. that's kind of the dream there. That that's what I always dreamt of doing. Um, but I was 6'2 half, two hundred and ninety 290 pounds, and not that fast. Very quick, but not NFL standard right. football specimen. You know, I was a really good college player, and I actually think I could have played in the NFL. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably 10 years past my prime. In fact, my body style was probably before the 80s. Uh, when I came out in the 90s, I was Fascinating. I was a retro-type player, so it didn't work out for me. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, um, it, that door was closed for me, so I had to retool my engine and figure out something else to do, and I got into corporate America. Had a good degree from the Citadel, had a good education, had a good head on my shoulders. So I got a sales and marketing job with 3M and did that for a while.
0: Huh. Yeah. What was the Citadel like? Because it's a legendary school. And <laughs> you just recently went back and gave a commencement speech, didn't you? Not so I long, did. long
1: ago. I was a commencement speaker for the class of 2017.
0: So tell us a little bit about Citadel and what influence it had on you.
1: Well, I always say this, and I meant to say this at the commencement speech at the end, but the Citadel is a great place to be from. But it's not a great place to be all the time, you know. It's, it's a tough place. Um, you know, when you're an African American uh, going to that school, there it comes with another set of challenges. But what I do love about the school is the the amount of discipline uh, you have to have to go there. Uh, sometimes I question whether it's discipline because you're not allowed to do anything, so you don't have to make choices. But because you were restricted so much, you had to concentrate on that which was important. So you learn how to prioritize, and. You know, one of my recruiting stories I talked about in the commencement was my recruiting recruiting host, the second day of recruitment, says, hey, you know, I can't watch you today. i got to go study for a biology test. And on recruiting weekends, all you do is drink and have fun and party. And this guy was like, got to study for my biology test. And I was like, I need to be around this type of guy because I know if I'm in this type of crowd, they're going to influence me and I'm going to get my work done. So that was the choice I made there. It was a very tough school, tough school.
0: But you are obviously proud of having— a, survived, and B, succeeded.
1: Well, you know, that's the that's the, the the nugget they put out in front of you. It's the carrot in front of the horse. You know, everyone knows, and we're at least brainwashed to believe that if you can finish the Citadel, you can do anything you want to in the world. First of all, a lot of people respect you. And I have to be honest, I think that a lot of the opportunities that I got early on in the opera world were because they saw that on my resume. They knew, I felt like people felt that like they could trust me. Mm-hmm. They can give me something, and they knew I could take the ball and go with it. So um, I think that, just the pedigree allowed people to say, you know what? We can give this guy a shot, you know? So maybe I'm pipe dreaming. I don't know that that's really the case, but I, I'm assuming that the way I approached auditions, when I came with my packet all together, you know, I, I approached it like a business, you know? I'm, I'm selling myself as a product, and I want to put my best foot forward, and I think people took chances on me because of that. I learned that preparation from athletics and going to the Citadel, so...
0: One of the things that even in the short time in the beginning of this conversation together that keeps coming back, it's, I don't keep word count tallies in my head, but a recurring theme in the way that you talk about your drive and what you have already accomplished in your life is discipline. Yeah. And it seems as though it's really important to you.
1: It's important to anyone that's successful. You have to be able to concentrate and put forth the effort, put the work in for that which is important. I very easily, as an opera singer, I don't get out of bed before 10 o'clock in the morning sometimes, but I'll stay up late. And if I have to get up early, I'll get up early. I make sure that the things that are important are taken care of, you know, taking care of my voice, learning my music, you know, preparing for roles, memorizing my staging, helping my kid with his homework, you know. (laughs) But, you know, these things you have to prioritize. And I think that, especially in this business, there's no boss over you saying, you know, you got to study this today because you start rehearsal next week. I just got to get it done. So... Uh, even while I was here, I was, you know, I'm, I'm preparing roles, I'm getting things in order so that I can always be prepared. I, my biggest fear is walking into a situation and not being prepared. Yeah. That is, like, the worst thing I can do to a company, a conductor, my colleagues, and myself, to show up unprepared. I tell young singers all the time, your job is to be prepared. You should walk in and it better than everybody else. And if you don't, don't show up. <laughs> your
0: career although it started later than some, Mm. uh, took off like a rocket. I mean, you have sung in nearly every major opera house, and starring roles, and important supporting roles, and you've sung the core repertoire, and you have recently taken on the greatest challenge a bass can take on because you've taken on what was essentially a bass baritone or a baritone's role of the title role in Porgy and Bess. Now, alongside all of your core repertoire, your Grand Inquisitors and your Zacharias and your Sarastros and the Night Watchmen that you've sung for <laughs> us and so many other things you've done here with me elsewhere, um, what persuaded you to take a shot at Porgy?
1: <laughs> well, it's... I think the more appropriate question is what kept me away from it for so long. It's, well, that's uh, an equally
0: valid question, yeah. and that's an entire conversation by itself, because yeah, yeah. as an African-American singer, and I've produced Porgy once, done concerts where singers sing music from Porgy and Bess I don't know how many times in my life already, oh, wow. and so many African-American singers I have worked with who have success or are on the verge of success uh, in the world of opera, say, I'll sing something else for you first, but I don't want to sing for you because right. I'll get typecast. Yep. And so I'm very much aware of that, that. I won't even call it a stigma, but that, mm. that trap that a young African-American right. can, singer can fall into is to say, well, well, he sang, he, he sang Crown. Well, we, we can't hire him for, for, uh, for uh, Philip II, right, you know, right. because. So what were the things that kept you away from it and what drew you to it?
1: Well, the things that kept me away are the obvious things. You know, I was starting out as a bass, and every time someone heard me sing or heard me speak, they thought Porgy or Old Man River. Those two things were always following me around. Uh, And I gradually got myself into Joe uh, singing uh, Old Man River in the show show Showboat. Uh, It took me a while to do that. But I felt like at this point in my life, as you said, and I'm not bragging, but I've done quite a bit in the operatic world, mostly German and Italian repertoire, for the last seventeen years uh, and the opportunity came up where it was out of all places La Scala asked me to come sing Porgy. and I said, okay, well, this isn't quite what I wanted to do at La Scala and walking in the door, but it's La Scala it's La Scala and I don't I don't think you say no to them but once you know <laughs> <laughs> then they will call back and you know I I'd, I'd heard the I'd heard the show once or twice before, never really paid much attention to it because I did not want to go there. I thought it was too high. But after listening, I, I got the offer, and I said, give me a while to think about it. I listened to the role, and there was nothing in it musically and vocally that I didn't think I could do really well. Not just get by with, but I said, I can do this really well, I know I can do this well. I know I can do this, if I just do this this way, oh, that'll be great. I started envisioning my voice in this role, and I said, no, nah, I gotta do it. I have to be the person that does this now. And um, uh, it, you know, I, I I made a decision to go with it. I felt like I could do it, and it was. You know, and you were a
0: huge success. I mean, every huge. time I opened either social media or read something from the international music press, it was an absolute triumph for yes.
1: you. Yes, it was great. It was, it was, it fit my voice like a glove. The music came to me quicker than I ever thought it would. And it just worked. Everything just worked. And, uh, well,
0: and for me, one of the fascinating things about the role and the opera itself is the relationship between Porgy and Crown. Yes. Porgy is crippled as the as the libretto indicates. Um, in more traditional productions, older productions he's on a and a goat cart, as it were, you know, going around the stage. Some of the more modern productions he uses crutches. But um quite often, the physical juxtaposition of the physicality of Crown, who is supposed to be dangerous. He is Bess's wanton lover and and tempter. and Porgy is presumed to be, just by the nature of Crown, a smaller, less imposing man, although strong enough to kill Crown because, of course, his upper body is developed right. and he does eventually strangle him. Right. But I would imagine it's a casting challenge to have a big, imposing man like you as Porgy. I mean, there are many singers who are bigger than you. Who can play Crown up against you? It's got to well, be someone who's <laughs> taller, at least.
1: <laughs> you know, and therein lies one of the the, the the problems, I think, with me in this role, but... I always argue that, from a character standpoint, Mm -hmm. Porgy is the strongest character in the show. Bravo. You're right. right. He's the strongest character. He's the most trusted person. Everyone loves him. Everyone respects him. And the only thing wrong with him is his legs don't work. Other than that, he's a strong guy. Mentally, character-wise. Physically, he can't be too weak because he pushes himself around with his arms all the time. And at that moment, when he's talking to Bess, after she comes back from the Allen, he says, if there weren't no crown, what then?
0: One of the most chilling and beautiful moments in the opera.
1: It's right in the middle of, I love you, Borgie. Yeah. But when he asks that question, he knows in his mind at that moment, I've got to kill him. The only way I'm going to have her is if I get rid of him. And then he has the courage to do it and the ability to pull it off. So while the juxtaposition would be understood from a novice point of view, I think that he would be a lame, uh, a weaker, more demure character. He really isn't. If you think of, if you listen to the opera and listen to what people say about him, all the while, Porgy's too good for this. Porgy has good sense. Porgy's a good man. Porgy, they all love and respect him. You know, when the church session starts and he starts singing the hymn, he takes over the church. He he leads the prayer. You know, he's the one talking about God putting money in the saucer. So there's nothing weak about him, and I don't mind being myself and playing that now. I think I'd be a hell of a crown. <laughs> I think you would be, too. <laughs> but I, And that's one of the other things. I mean, I did my first porgy, my only porgy with Lester Lynch. And if you're going to have an imposing individual, he would be the one. He's crazy when he goes there. He goes all the way into left field. He's spitting on me. It's, it's just the perfect match. And I have to sit there underneath him, and I, I downplay it. But he really riled me up. Like, I wanted to kill him in the show.
0: And speaking of, uh, <laughs> you know, putting two titanic forces together, one of my happiest is memories of working with you is one of my earliest memories of working with you here when you came and sang in our Don Carlo. Oh, because wow. Because <laughs> I put you up against one of the great Philips of all time, James Morris, who's no small man either. No. And uh, that incredible scene between King Philip and the Grand Inquisitor, we started calling it at rehearsal Behind Your Backs it's the Battle of the Mastodons. <laughs> I have never seen on stage two more powerful human beings and po- right. more powerful singers going at each other and never touching each other. Right. But just the the physicality of your vocalism and also the power of your characters, is it fun playing off a, 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 an equally big personality?
1: It absolutely is. It's, it's almost like... It's almost like... Going to practice with your best friend that lines up next to you or lines up across from you. He's a defensive tackle and you're an offensive guard, and you got to go against each other every day. Mm-hmm. You go hard as you can, but you're making each other better. So, you know, when he starts off, the king starts off, and he does this thing. Then my next lines, I have to do more. And then he looks at me and says, "Oh yeah." And then he comes back stronger, and I go stronger. And the way the music is written, it actually stair steps. Yeah, it just keeps going up and up and up. So. It is a vocal battle, so to speak, but it's a battle of characters, it's a battle of wills, and all that stuff just comes out if it's done right. And I was so appreciative to be able to do it with that guy. I was intimidated because he didn't show up for rehearsals. So was he? <laughs> <laughs> he didn't show up for rehearsals for like the first two weeks, and then when he showed up, I was like, oh, here goes. <laughs> you did just fine. I hope, and we talk.
0: We still talk about it almost ten years later. So how do you how do you add a role to your wish list? Um, how are you How are you continuing to? refresh yourself uh, 17 years on in your career. Uh, mind you, I mean, there are hundreds of roles you could sing, mm-hmm. obviously, and in the full range of opera going from ancient to modern. But how do, you pick, how do you pick the things you like to add to your bag of tricks?
1: Well, I've been adding things slowly as, as time goes. Um, Zachariah, I did once before. I just That's got the, doing it. The Priest in Nabucco. The Priest in Nabucco. That, yeah. I think, is the most challenging bass role in the bass repertoire might even be more so than Porky. Wow. Uh,
0: and it's but, not as long either.
1: Oh well, it's not as long, but it's absolutely vocally demanding. Mm-hmm. Um but I enjoy that. And I want to do I think at this point I'm not adding things to my repertoire. I'm just wanting to do more of the things I enjoy at different places. Ah. Um so the that's it's that's where I am right now. I'm um I'm I'm very confident in what I can do vocally. I've grown to the point where I feel like there are certain things I do really well, and I try to stay within that framework and go with the roles that, that cater to what I do really well, um, and stretch it sometimes. I mean, going to with, with Porky was a stretch, but it fit like a glove now. So I'm, I'm just, I'm I'm, I'm I'm focusing on the larger things that I do now, and now focusing on singing them at the larger houses and larger places and internationally and that kind of
0: thing. So in the past, when you have added a new role to your repertoire, what's your particular method of uh, study and attack? Because I know every young singer mm-hmm. who listens to this will want to know well how does Morris Robinson, particularly someone who came to opera later than some right. how does he do it?
1: Well I can't sit down at the piano and play for myself. Mm-hmm. I've never been able to do that. Um, so the first thing I do is I'll go buy the score. I won't listen to a recording. I'll look at the score. I'll look at all the notes. I'll look at all the look at the testature and just say okay this seems pretty comfortable. Then I'll buy a recording mm-hmm. and I'll listen to it with the recording and Listen for the pitfalls, listen for this, and then I'll say, okay. And then I'll call a coach, and I'll go and learn it with the coach. I'll have someone play through the part with me. I'll take my phone and record it, and I won't sing through it. I'll sing through some of it, kind of sightseeing it, mark the tough spots, and I'll go, back, I'll go away for about a week or two or three, and I'll come back even more prepared and do it again. And I'll just repeat that process over and over and over.
0: It really is. As, it's like developing a play, this, uh, like in football. The, the analogies come back again and again. Yes. And, I, I, and I know you've probably heard that if, through all the 17 years that you've been actively singing. Mm-hmm. But uh, it would seem that if they're as improbable as your beginnings in sport might seem to the outsider as you've become an opera singer, the more we think about it and talk about it, it's the perfect analogy and it's almost the near perfect path.
1: Absolutely parallel uh, career path. Absolutely parallel as far as preparation, discipline, learning, coachability. You know, when you show up in front of a conductor or a coach and you have your idea about how something goes and how you should sing something, they may have a different idea. You know, your football coach says, Yeah, I know you want to get to that linebacker, but you're taking a bad step. Why don't you go this way? Or if he comes in this hole, change your play and go this way. Well, you have to be just as flexible in music you know, I can show up all the way prepared and ready to go and the conductor may think something is different or see things differently or have a different idea. I have to be able to, on the spot, change that and produce at a high level. So all those scenes play hand in hand, you know. Uh, in a highly pressurized environment, too. But Ex- exactly <laughs> right, because
0: rehearsal time is precious and you right. have lots of colleagues who are also trying to achieve their goals at the same time. Right. Um, I've often asked this question of singers and I'm, I've been often as surprised as uh, delighted uh, by some of their answers because quite often it isn't in their voice category but who are your who are your idols as singers across any genre your voice other voices other genres <laughs> who are your favorites
1: as singers
0: yeah just a couple it doesn't have to be everybody <laughs> well
1: in, in opera it's Bonalo Giotti
0: uh, Bonalo Giotti a voice that a name that we don't know very well now because he has retired if I remember yes, right yes 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 and, uh, and was a canon of a voice
1: particularly canon. in the 80s yeah I loved his singing uh, still do I listen to it. if I can if I'm doing a new role and he's done it I'll go find that recording mm-hmm. uh, Federico Furlanetto nowadays is who is just... still singing uh, <laughs> Furlanetto will probably be singing at the age of 100 well he's singing <laughs> the first show I did first show I heard him he was singing uh, Le Nozze at the Metropolitan Opera when I was a young artist and I was like why is he this huge can of a sound I literally I knew at that moment that it had to be Mike but he wasn't Mike it just carries that well and i I figured that out because I went to Verbier Festival the following summer to sing with him. And I sat right next to him in rehearsals, and he sang Il Acerato Spirito. And uh, I'd never heard a voice with that much power, that much point, that much legato. And his breathing was so deep that the floor shook when he sang. I was right next to him, and I was like... (sighs) Okay, I'll never sound like that, but, it was, <laughs> but I can sure try. I can sure try. So yeah, I love his singing. Um, Sam Raimi, great buddy of mine. I did a lot of stuff with him. Learned a lot from him. Um, this guy was just spot on, perfect. Never made a mistake. <laughs> he just stayed right down the middle. It's like playing a perfect game of golf. He hits it right in the fairway. Doesn't make so. I love his stuff. And Kurt wall God rest his soul, taught me so much when I was a young artist. So.
0: Those great, are my, great German bass. Yeah, those, really are,
1: my, those are my guys. Yeah.
0: So outside of your world of opera, do you have a couple of favorite singers?
1: Yeah, I mean, well, you know, I, I love Prince. I've always loved Prince. Uh, <clears throat> he could do anything he wanted to do vocally. He can play any instrument. Uh, a lot of his early albums, he did he played, every, all them, played all of played all the instruments. Exactly, just, right.
0: that's what we found out. Yes, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I loved
1: him. I, I, and I always called him the Mozart of our modern day Mozart. You know, I, I compared the two. After seeing Amadeus, I was like, he reminds you of Prince. So, <laughs> I love him. Um, who else do I like nowadays? Eh, I'm very picky with my vocals nowadays. Good for you. Rochelle Ferrell, no one can touch her. Ledisi, good friend of mine, wonderful singer. Um,
0: and living in Atlanta, do you rub shoulders with some of? The Atlanta music royalty that seems to you find a great artist in every genre on every yeah. corner in the streets of Atlanta. It's
1: funny, when I'm in Atlanta, I don't hang out that much because I'm always gone anyway. Right. Um, I rub shoulders with people in LA all the time, in, in Chicago, DC, Dallas, Houston. But when I'm home, I do run into people. I mean, I, you, if you're in the right spot, you meet people all the time. So yeah. sometimes I'm I'm not so up on who's who, like my little sister will have to say, you know who that is? That's T.I. Oh, what's up, dog? You're, I, I'm <laughs> you, <not that. laughs> you just paid for your groceries behind Usher, right? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: We have something here in Cincinnati of which you have been such an important part for several years. Um, it was invented by our wonderful, wonderful colleague, Tracy Wilson, who uh, dreamed up this idea that opera and church share so much, and you're a perfect example. And so many great African-American singers in particular got their start in church. And so um, Tracy had the wonderful idea, it was in my ex- actually in my first year, um, 13 years ago, that um, we should be taking our art form and not just bringing it to church, but understanding that these are two forms of worship just with different origin points. Mm-hmm and to actually collaborate. And we, of course we started out with the great Allen Temple. We've branched out and gone to churches and synagogues all over the Cincinnati area. But you've been a very, very important part of this grand program called Opera Goes to Church. And I'd like you to spend a minute just talking about it, what it means to you, what's been some of your experience with it.
1: It's, uh, it's one of the first things I did when I got to Cincinnati Opera. It, it made me feel like this is exactly where I wanna be. Uh, the fact that A, you're reaching out into the community B, you're reaching into the church. C, you're putting people like myself in an environment that I'm very comfortable in. Uh, I'm not as comfortable in the operatic stage sometimes as I am in church. You know, I grew up there. Uh, You know, the style of singing is different to a degree. Mm -hmm. I've never really been a great gospel singer, but the same emotions that I sing, you know, uh, Amazing Grace are the same emotions I sing, Il Atrato Spirito. It's just... You, it's in your spirit that music comes out that way, and you 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 emote through it. So it's the same type of emotional involvement. But you know, music is music, and we all appreciate it on on, on various levels. But I th- that first my first conductor was my choir director. You know, you know, so I get that part, and I get this part, and it prepared me for this part. You know, my first choir director. I was on the drum. Said, "No matter what I do, don't take your eyes off me." Every conductor I've worked with in this business loves the fact that Morris Robinson is always connected with me. And I, you know, the stage directors may not like it, but the conductors love it. You know, because you can't it, please everybody. Can't Morris. please everybody. <laughs> but no, I mean, it's just it's wonderful to 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 have that cross pollinization of, of of genres under one roof and just make it a very celebratory thing. It's uh, very great to go back to your roots and go back home and be able to participate. So.
0: Well, it's wonderful to see you in that environment, both as a singer and as a drummer. Because, <laughs> if I recall, at least twice when I've been twice. there, when you've done it, you have actually taken a, taken a turn at the drum set.
1: Well, the funny thing is, I think my second time there, Tracy was kind of spazzing out because the drummer canceled that the, the second one, and I was like, "You need a drummer?" She's like, "Yeah, we need a drummer." And when rehearsals in an hour. I said, "I can play the drums." Are you kidding me? I can play the drums. I can
0: just hear this conversation. <laughs> I said, "If there are
1: sticks there, don't worry about it. I'll play." She's like, "But Morris," I said, "Just trust me on this." And I showed up and. Right in.
0: <laughs> well, that was a successful performance, but you know, uh, overall for you, how do you measure a successful performance? When do you, when you come off stage, do you have a sense? Yeah, tonight went well, or mm, uh, this was this was not my, my my absolute A game, but I I still was professional. I mean, what are your what are your litmus tests
1: for yourself? Well, well I set a range, and uh, there's no solidity to the range. I just know that there's a range of acceptability. Um, I've done performances that I'm not extraordinarily proud of but because if if one thing isn't working then you utilize other gifts you know to try to make it work so maybe my voice isn't 100% tonight but my 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 acting can be good my my characterization can be on point you know my musicality can be more focused sometimes you sing better when you're not feeling completely well uh-huh. because you focus on technique you focus on delivery you focus on all kinds of things so uh, to make the performance go well. But, you know, I, I when I walk off stage after a big scene, I'm usually the first w- person to say to myself, yep, they got it. You know, <laughs> it's kind of like going out and knocking someone down on the football field. You know you've done a good job. Um, and one of my things I prided myself on in college was to never physically get beaten in football. I can make a mental error, but I never want anyone to physically beat me. Mm-hmm. And I try to go out and do the same thing opera. I don't want to lose a physical battle to myself, to my voice, to the circumstances, I always want to go out and do the best that I can, and if I do that, I feel good about it.
0: So. You know, you're, you, if you were to meet a colleague uh, in another walk of life, and I, I'm sure you get this a lot still uh, when they say you're an opera singer, and they said, "Oh, you don't look like an opera singer, you don't, you, know, <laughs> you don't act like an opera right. singer," but I'm sure, just like every opera, other opera singer, you have certain things you do on performance days. Are you have your own like a, like an like an athlete getting yeah. ready for a, a big yeah. game? So. How do you get ready for your big game?
1: So the funny thing with me is the only performances I get weird over are openings. It's just the opening. That's the one that gets reviewed. That's the one that sets the tone. They're never your best performance, but that's where the New York Times is. That's where LA Times. So it just kind of, I'm nuts on that day. I don't want anyone around me. Hopefully some football is on. I can sit home and watch football all I want to. I'll have a steamer there. I can steam. I try to make sure I eat all the right things, nothing that's going to give me reflux, nothing with, with uh, caffeine in it, nothing with chocolate. Just, you know, try to stay very bland. I uh, make sure I eat three hours before I go on so that nothing's coming up after I get on. Now, the the funny thing is, I can be in the rehearsal process and grab a burger on the way to rehearsal, walk in and sing perfectly. But it's not the same for opening. Once the opening is over, then I'm real chill to be around Mm -hmm. you know i can go cook on the grill oops i gotta be there in five minutes i gotta go you know (laughs) nothing bothers me as long as my voice is fine i'm i'm pretty pretty laid back you know and
0: is it true that basses and mezzos in particular sort of the people who sing in the what you would call the normal range although a bass isn't normal a bass is a, a little bit unusual but you are basses and mezzos in my experience have been pretty chill people in general
1: we're not very neurotic, you know. <laughs> I'm certainly like a tenor. <laughs> I've been around tenors and sopranos. Now, I think even you have called me a tenor to acting bass on some occasions. A couple, I, of, oh, times I've, well? I've, a couple of times Just, I had to call you out. That's only true. if I'm not feeling well, but yeah, otherwise I'm pretty chilled out. You know? It's not a <laughs> big deal, you know. I always say if you have a room full of basses and some famous conductor says, who wants to sing uh, the Code Aria? We'd all sit around and say, you want to try it? You want to try it? I'll try it. You know, no one's going to be like... My I should do it. You know, they it's like eh, let that guy sing. It. I'll drink a beer, and then when you get done, they'll they'll talk about you. You know, you can say that you flat better, man. <laughs> but we're just very chill. There's out. a more,
0: there's a greater camaraderie. I that's think so. True. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Yeah. You talked about it a little bit ago about um, in the way you learn a role. You you know, you use your phone uh, to to record during uh, during a lesson or a coaching. Um, Technology in general, how's it made learning learning your craft the, the vast amount of technology we have at our disposal today
1: oh, easier different? It's so much different. When I started in 1999 in at Opera Institute, I would have to you know order music, have it sent in, or I'd get a score and I'd have to go to what Tower Records, or go to Barnes and Noble and hope they have it in, or they'd have to order it in. I can literally sit at my phone and click on YouTube and find thirty examples of it right now. You know, I can, I can stream in the recording out right off of iTunes on you know, uh, Apple Music, and I can be studying immediately. So access is really the biggest thing that's changed right now. It's just access, and uh, if you want to cross uh, compare, uh, Renee Fleming singing it versus Carita Matla singing it versus this you know, not for me, but I'm just saying that it's at your fingertips. You can look at every, all the greats and how they bring things to the role and you can learn right there. It's just, it's just access is really incredible, you know.
0: Well, and you talk about access and our art form, because it is a theatrical art form of all the sort of uh, concert arts, let's say, or or, or, or uh, culture-based arts, or at least, I, I, I lose the words when I try to figure out a way of saying that, We work in an art form that in its heyday was the popular entertainment of the masses. It was the television. Yeah. Yeah. 19th century opera, particularly in Italy, it was like TV. Uh, It's not as much now. And so I think that we're always, all of us who love opera and who produce opera and who sing in opera, always trying to find ways to convince people who haven't tried it before to give it a try. Yeah. Because once you like it, you're hooked. So, um, what's your method of convincing a friend who hasn't tried opera before to? What do you tell them to say to get them into the theater? Well, other than come and see me. <laughs>
1: well, that's the easy part, you know. Yeah, um, of course. <laughs> I think that, uh, and that therein lies, you know, part of my strategy is that, you know, I don't look like what people think opera singers are supposed to look like. I don't go to where opera singers hang out. You know, I get my hair cut at the barbershop, wherever that is. I'll go to this mall. I Go get my tire my cars cleaned here, you know. And in those social environments I meet people and you know, the first thing they think is, Oh, you used to play for the Bengals when I'm here. No, bro, I didn't do that. Was, I played little ball before. What do you do now? What are you here? I'm working. Oh, what are you doing? Uh, you I tell them I'm an opera singer. And usually their mouths are open and they go, What? And after that conversation, they're already sold on you know, I'm coming to check this out because I can't believe that you're there, you know. So but you get the
0: you have the element of surprise.
1: I have the element of surprise <laughs> and I enjoy that part. Even riding in cabs, you know, at oh, the airport, you know, no one, no one can figure out what I, what I really do. You know, they, they have all these assumptions in their mind, but when I tell them the real deal is always shock value, so I enjoy that part. Um, but <clears throat> I think that, to your point, you know, we have to now make, figure out ways to make inroads into society such that this becomes a good option for entertainment. Um, I heard someone say yesterday, if they're going to pay one hundred and fifty bucks for a football ticket. Maybe they can pay 125 bucks for an opera ticket. How do we convince them to do that? You know, um, I think having the personnel on stage, having the personnel to go out and reach people that connect with people on a different level. I think that's important. I think uh, making it welcome, welcoming to people when people walk into the opera house, they feel comfortable. Uh, come as you are. I, I made a comparison last night about the mega churches. You know, I grew up at a con- traditional church. You walked in, you had a suit and tie on. The kids wore shirt and tie. The dad wore the suit. Mom wore the hat. The hat. The, the, hat, wh- the, the hat. hat. My mom was like the queen of hats. Like, she was buried in one of her hats. Like, she had all these pictures of her hats at her funeral. My mom has all these hats. But, you know, that is kind of going the way of the Dodo bird anymore. I mean, these large, very successful churches, you see the pastor on stage with his shirt untucked and jeans with tennis shoes on. And it's that come as you are, that welcoming, that we need to start looking at that and understanding that the more people feel welcome, the easier it is to get them to walk through the door and i hope you know i can participate in facilitating that type of thing uh not just that but other methods to go out into the community as the artistic advisor here you know um i know that i have artistic responsibilities as well but just going out and planting the flag on the hill and bringing people in and making them feel comfortable you know so i think that we have to do as a business or we won't be around for a very long time so
0: for me one of the most exciting things about your new role with us here at cincinnati opera is exactly the two-pronged approach uh, that, that you will take and have already begun to take with us in helping us um, view through different lenses, new lenses, who our audience can be and how we have to welcome them, mm-hmm. but also on the artistic side um, to help me in particular in having the broadest possible uh, reach into the incredible wealth of young singing talent out there today. Right. Um, African American, Latino, from Asia, from yes, from the good old uh, you know conservatories of the U.S. of A. and all mm-hmm. of that. But for me, one of the things that I love about working with uh, a singer of your stature and also of your reach is that you two are still you two are still making a few debuts here and there. You're going you're you're going places for the first time where you're going to meet a whole new group of people. Mm-hmm and uh, bring that information back to us at, right. at Cincinnati Opera. And I'm thrilled that we can be able to work closely together now in this capacity, as well as, you know, we've, we've booked you seasons hence, so <laughs> that's also a good thing. But Whoa. spend a moment, if you would, as we come to the end of our conversation, Morris, about what you feel um, is important for someone, you in particular, um, to be able to do in this role, beyond what you've just articulated, but also, what are a couple of the ideas that you have already, having known the company a little bit, knowing the community a little bit, what can we be doing?
1: Well, I think that, you know, there's a broad brush of paint with, where you reach out and, and welcome the masses and say, we'll treat you well, and we'll make you feel comfortable. But I think we also have to specifically target markets. You know, this is my business background. You have to go after a demographic, and you know you're not going to hit everybody with one paintbrush. You may do this part here, and then concentrate your efforts here with this next segment. But you know, I thought about just being an African American. I thought about the fraternities and sororities. You know, mm-hmm. I'm in a I'm in a black fraternity. I'm a, I'm going to make a sci I'm I'm a Q, and I know a lot of the brothers that are here. Uh, Larry Brownlee is a Kappa. You know, uh, Nicole Heaston is a Delta. Um, you know. Um, Kristen Lewis is an AKA, you know Camille Humes, who's from here, went to the conservatory here, who I've sung with on stage here. He's an Alpha, you know. Is, uh, uh, John Holliday, the the famous counter-tenor. countertenor, is a Sigma, you know. So I don't even think they know we exist, you know. And that those once you hit that sect of society, you're already already you're already filtrating into colleges and universities, churches, you know, businesses, corporations, because these are people that are educated, that have jobs, that that have far reaches, and they also they have talent searches. Every last one of them, they have community projects, so they're reaching out into the community. They're saying, you know, so there's one approach. You know, there are other groups like Jack and Jill. There's uh the Links. There's the boulet There are other you know social organizations within the Black community you can reach. The churches, absolutely, you have to go there. You know, the, and that's some of that stuff is being done. But I'm just thinking, you know, let's start looking at some specific targets that we can go after. Mm-hmm. And like I said, once once these things are, in, there's nothing done yet. It's it's developing as an idea. But bringing that in, bringing people in and then making them feel at home, making them feel welcome, letting them know that this is an environment that is not just for the aristocracy. All of us can participate and all of us can enjoy it. It's a great art form, and I love it. So,
0: Talk to us a little bit about your wonderful idea about the Divine Nine.
1: <laughs> well, I just kind of brushed over that. And, you know, it's it's in development. You know, it's not it's For not someone who doesn't know what that group of colleges is. Well, the is. Divine Nine is, is the nine black Greek organizations of, on colleges and university campuses. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way they came about is, you know, in, at the turn of the century, African-Americans weren't allowed to pledge the Greek organizations on white campuses. In fact, they weren't even allowed to go to school on a lot of those campuses. So <clears throat> we saw fraternities and sororities of the white uh, uh, co-eds that were allowed to do those things. so we developed our own. Uh, my fraternity is the first Black Greek organization founded on a Black campus, historical Black campus. We were founded at Howard University in 1911. Before us, in 1906, Alpha Phi Alpha was founded at Cornell University. After that, it was Alpha Kappa Alpha. They were founded at oh, I'm going to get killed for not knowing where they. I think they were founded at Princeton, but I'm not sure. But uh, maybe they were at Howard also. But these organizations started at the turn of the century, started showing up, and they they were an opportunity for educated African-Americans to have their own Greek organization, mm-hmm. go back into the community, do service, offer scholarships, you know, do all sorts of things to kind of make their presence known, but also reach back into the community, mm-hmm. make sure that they were known so that when kids recognized them, they went to college, they aspire to do the same thing. And we've been around over 100 years now. so uh, Another
0: wonderful resource to
1: tap. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, because, it, you know, one of the things when, you, when you're an African-American and you go to college, one of the things you want to do is pledge a Greek organization. And because they're all college educated, and because they all come out and they're successful, and because they all, there's lots of them reside here. I know a number of my fraternity brothers. Some of them have come to my performances here. But one of the things I do when I'm not on stage, if I have some time off, and I find out that they're getting together watching a game, I'll go hang out. You know, that keeps me out of the opera world. It kind of keeps me normal. <laughs> so, but yeah,
0: but you're someone whom I admire because you you not only seek balance, but you achieve balance. Ugh. You try to have as normal a life as a husband and a father as you do as an opera singer. And that's so
1: important. It's it's very hard to do. It's uh and and it's hard to do that without sacrificing your responsibilities on that side or your responsibilities as a singer. So it's I I try to make it work, you know. Uh, Miles has gone on the road with me now, and he's been in shows with me. He was in the show the last show I did here. He was in with me. Um, That's right.
0: Miles was on stage with
1: you. Miles is getting too big now. Miles, he's no longer a
0: kid actor.
1: No, nah, he's, he, he's a young man. He's now. a kid. He's twelve, but he looks like you know the, the lead tenor. He's a big boy. So takes after his dad. Yeah, he's taking after me. And yeah. his mom's
0: not short either. She's your your wife is tall. She's yeah. six so exactly.
1: one. Uh, he gets it naturally. <laughs> the only thing that bothers me. Well, I'm not now. I'm taking a tangent here. We were talking Friends about the Divine right. Nine. Miles doesn't want to play football. It breaks my heart. He wants to be the CEO of Nintendo America, though.
0: Well, that's all right, because maybe he'll be able to support Dad in his old age, (laughs) (laughs) which won't be such a bad thing. He can buy me a football team. (laughs) (laughs) So we're we're coming to the end of our time together, and I I always ask our guests uh, the same sort of questions. Mm -mm. Uh, None of them is serious, and you can be as flip as you want in your answer. All right. I won't even look. All right. What's up? What did you have for breakfast today?
1: Okay. So... I went downstairs at Hathaways.
0: Oh, you found Hathaways. I found Hathaways. One of the
1: divine places of Cincinnati. Love Hathaways. I I'm at the Hilton and they have a great buffet, but uh, Hathaways is exactly where to go. It's a so very old fashioned diner. I had two pancakes, two eggs scrambled with cheese, some corned beef hash, and water. That was my breakfast today. No caffeine. No caffeine.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, books or magazines that you find on your nightstand, or something you carry around with you that you like to read?
1: My scores. I know. I know it's a shame it's my scores I have I, I'm doing the critical edition of Porgy and Best. so they gave me each each act has its own book and I've been walking around with those under my arm like a nerd <laughs> it is not much different than you know, but there are about three or four scenes that I never did before so that's if I got a book it's a score otherwise I'm looking at social media or looking on my phone and stuff so
0: well speaking of that <laughs> any television program either online or on good old fashioned terrestrial TV that catches you besides sports
1: Besides sports, Mm -hmm. uh, yes, Snapped, First 48. Mm -hmm. I've found those because as an opera singer, you spend a lot of time on the road by yourself and you're flipping channels and these murder mystery things kind of keep me engaged, you know, and I can kind of watch those. and, And before one goes off, another one comes on. Before you know it, you've watched seven or eight of them. I know. So I watch that and I watch HGTV a lot, you know.
0: Wow. Yeah. And you talk, you've talk. you talked about your phone a little
1: bit. Are there any apps
0: in particular that either professionally or personally you find really helpful?
1: Apple Music has mm. been saving me. I can literally go on there and find anything. I didn't know about it. For 10 bucks a month, I can get anything. So I can be at home watching a game. I can have music playing in the background. If I want to go grab another score or I want to hear somebody else do something else, I'll just look it up and it's there. So. I'm loving that, yeah.
0: Well, we're going to make a proper Cincinnatian out of you sooner or later, and you've already divulged that you've developed a passion for Hathaway's. Yes. So I think you've answered the question about, at least for now, your favorite restaurant. Um, Oh! (laughs) What's the best career advice you have received thus far? In life? Or career, about career. Yeah, in life, about your career. Oh, goodness. Uh, Well. Or at least an important piece of advice. Maybe not the very best, because that's pretty arbitrary.
1: Well, from a marketing and an and a, and a awareness standpoint, I was told, never get tired of telling your story. And I've had to do that a 100 million times. And I've had to do it today. But it's exactly who I am, and it's part of me, and it's, it's, an, it's interesting enough to, to help me remain uh, relevant as far as marketing goes, that type of thing. Um, it's also very inspiring. Well, thank you very much. I, I appreciate that aspect of it too, because I, I hear from young singers all the time that hear my story, and you know admire, it and you know either come from my vantage point, come from other vantage points, are even more prepared to do this. But they just talk to me, and I, I try to give them insight on how it can be done. It's achievable. Um, from a career standpoint, Willet White told me, never stop learning. This business, you never stop learning. And If you ever get bored. Learn some more, and if you ever find yourself where you're not learning anything, get out. And that always sticks with me because sometimes I'll get a big role, and it's like I don't feel like doing this. But you know what? the The hunger for the knowledge is always there, and that pushes me through. The hunger for the accomplishment is th- is always there. You know, the the hunger for wanting that achievement under my belt is always there. So. Yeah, that was great advice. You
0: spoke a little bit about it earlier about try you achieve that state of normalcy, particularly after the opening. But um, as a as a singer, as a as an independent contractor, there's a lot of stress in your life. Yes. How do you deal with stress?
1: Well, <laughs> I'm a single graduate. I've been dealing with stress since since my 18th birthday. Um, you know, there is stress involved. But you know, I go back to church. I go back to my upbringing. I go back to my mom and dad, my grandparents. I go back to an old saying that God will never bring you, he didn't bring you this far to leave you. There's no way that he's allowed me to get to this point in my life to just say, all right, it's over, you're done, and leave me out there. You know, I've I've worked really hard. I've busted my tail. I've kept my nose clean in the business. I've done what I'm supposed to do to make it work, and hopefully if I keep doing that, God will see me through. So that's how I look at it.
0: I'm sure you've already mentioned a couple of people you've admired and worked alongside. Any one or two particular mentors that have helped you go on this path, people that you're, are your your guide stars, someone you turn to for advice to this day?
1: Well, there, there are tons. I mean, I, the list is very, very long. Uh, Stephen Lord, you know, gave me my first real operatic chance. I mean, he gave me my first three or four roles and took me to St. Louis and brought me back to St. Louis and... He just heard me and was like, yep, you're going to be a singer and you're going to do it and don't screw it up. And Any just...
0: singer of the last 40 years <laughs> should have a little shrine to Stephen Lord in their Absolutely. house. Absolutely. He's... He's been a great colleague.
1: He's been great. Um, the second person I would say I met here, um, well, I mean, come on, there's Gay Letha Nichols, there's Ken Noda, there's Maestro Levine, you know, all these people were very instrumental. But then I met James Conlon. Mm-hmm. Actually, I met his wife and then she turned me on to him. And I'm, that's how I met you, you know, singing at the May Festival here. and This guy is you know, I always joke with him. I say, "You've been paying my mortgage for the last fifteen years," but you know, he hasn't
0: asked for a percentage. I hope.
1: <laughs> no, he just—he always pushes me. Though it's like, Maestro, I don't think I can do that. Yeah, you can sing it. You're gonna sing it. So, you know, I, I remember doing the Rossini at Mata here. I remember uh, there's some other things I did here. I was like, I'm not supposed to be, and I did it. You know, that the first Ferrando, I was—I'd ne- never done anything like that before. That's when you heard me. But just always pushing me, always giving me a chance and. I never want to disappoint him, Uh, and then you. I mean, you know, you've kind of taken the reins from him and and given me opportunities, and and I trust your ears, I trust your advice, so it's just, you know, I've been very blessed to be in the hands of a lot of great people, and uh, I rely on them to keep me on my path, you know.
0: Thank you, Morris. Thank you for the generosity of your time, your (laughs) generosity of spirit, and your beautiful story. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information about Cincinnati Opera, Go to cincinnatiopera.org and please do subscribe to this podcast. For the Cincinnati Opera, I'm Evans Moraches.